Here we go. Folks, this is your host, Cameron Ivey of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I am your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me, as always, Mr. Gabe Gums. Gabe, how you doing, man? I'm all right. It's Monday. You you caught me like two, three days late. What what happened to what happened to Fridays? I don't know. It just went it just went by way too fast. <laughs> we, we couldn't make it happen. But uh, we do have a special guest here on on this Monday. Uh, she goes by the name Cat Techno Cat Casey. Um, some might know her as Techno Cat. Uh, but Casey, thank you so much for for coming on the show. We're really excited to have you. It's my pleasure. You had me at data and privacy and all those fun things that I talk and write about all the time. So I'm, I'm stoked. Done. Awesome. Um, so uh, the way we're going to just start off the show is uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and let us learn where you came from and how you got to be the, the techno cat. For sure. Well, I started as most people do that get into technology by studying existential philosophy because dead Germans are the surest way to start designing AI-powered tech, right? Um, (laughs) No, I I decided at like 12, I wanted to be a lawyer, went to undergrad, finished in three years, went to law school, realized, wow, I don't like practicing law. (laughs) But what I do like and what I'm really good at is translating tech to lawyers in a way that makes sense to them. And so, gosh, now about 15 plus years ago, I fell into this industry called e-discovery, basically when the world shifted from paper to digital, privacy changed and so did litigation and so did investigations. And so I kind of fell into this space where law met technology out of necessity. And so I've run the tech programs for the big four, uh, KPMG and PwC. I ran a global uh, legal technology uh, practice for a top 10 law firm. I was the CNO for a kind of AI powered cloud e-discovery company. And I'm the chief growth officer for a company called Reveal, which we're in the cloud. We are AI. We're kind of the most powerful AI that deals with what goes wrong when privacy doesn't go right. Ooh. So that's me. That's quite, quite a rich history. Yeah, you, you joke about the philosophy, but uh, I've got a good buddy who's a technologist also and uh, a philosopher, as he likes to say, a <laughs> philosopher turned technologist who would agree with everything that you said. We should get him on the show one of these days too, but enough about him. Um, <laughs> so a lawyer by trade. Technology by uh, uh, non-practicing. Non-practicing. Not, do not put that mantle on me. Um, I love but, how quick I mean, you are to draw that line now. Like non-practicing. Not Don't blame it on me. Um, no, but I, I I really like sitting at this intersection because I'm I'm a translator between law and tech. I mean, if you think of the best engineers out there, and then you think about I don't know. The guys on suits, do you really think they'd be able to talk well to each other? If you guessed no, you're right. So kind of being in that intersection gives me the ability to kind of help both sides. So as someone who lives at a similar intersection, maybe in a different town, I find the the power of storytelling to be invaluable. Mm -hmm. 
Do you find the same when trying to perform that translation? And if so, what's one of the most powerful stories you've you've told to date? 100%. Uh, so law is risk adverse, which means they are to a degree technophobic. And so my big mission in life is to get lawyers to embrace AI, embrace technology, embrace, you know, both kind of data mapping all the way through to like, if you've got a litigation using the tools that you can. And I get so much pushback. And so some of my favorite stories are talking about, like I had a, had a client who had hired a team of traders from a bank that had just been fined $2.5 billion. And those traders worked with the named plaintiffs in the investigation, the named people that got the company in trouble. And so I had this big bank come to me like, oh, goodness gracious, that was not the word they used. How much likelihood is it that we are going to be facing the same front page of the Wall Street Journal, multi-billion dollar fine? So normally you'd have to spend tens of millions of dollars, look at all this data and hope and pray you find the right information. I was able to use AI to do social network analysis. Who's talking to who? And I thought, okay, they are talking to the cartel club. That was the name that the other group called themselves. Not at all indicative of them being problematic, I'm sure, right? So, okay, they are they are saying, they are talking to the wrong people. Then I use kind of some linguistic analytics across multiple data sources to be like, all right, are they saying things that are problematic? They were. They were saying they're spoofing granny and they're going to take all her money. Really bad. Then I was able to go into the structured data source because we had that kind of all archived and accessible, run some additional analytics and say, okay, they looks bad, sounds bad, but they didn't actually do any of the bad trades, present that to a regulator. And then my case team, my attorneys saved their client multiple billion dollars. We're not on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and it only cost them a couple hundred thousand dollars. So that story is why AI is so important because there would have been no path to have that resolution going the old school way. So that's one of the stories that I'm like, do you really want to be the guy that was like, let's do it the way we always did and then fail <laughs> to the yeah. two billions of dollars? Well, that's a hell of a story. Yeah. I, I wasn't expecting that. That's uh, <laughs> that'll get you. Wow. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Is there one, two, maybe three, but, but maybe there's just one common misconception amongst the, uh, the, the erudites of the world that, that are being resistant to this shift? Yeah. The biggest one is that they're not using this stuff already. Like I, my favorite poll question. The worst kind asked, of erudites. They've never yeah. even stepped foot inside the loom, loom machine. No. But, but they have this little thing. I mean, you can see my screen, right? Which means do you have Facebook? Does your kid have Facebook? AI powered. All right. Do you use GPS? AI powered. Do you use amazon.com AI powered? I mean, do you take photos on this and use it like a camera? It's got geolocation, mm -hmm. which is AI powered. And so, you know, I think same thing with from the privacy standpoint, because there is just a wealth of AI there too. People think they're not using it. They think it's new and novel and scary and unknown and risky. And I'm like, eh, the books about this were written in 1956. It's used in every industry. It's extensively applied and validated. It's riskier not to use it. So. Right. They just don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. That fear of the unknown gets them every single time. That's why I like to lean into the FOMO, fear right. of missing out. You know, uh, eh. people are driven by fear often. I'd rather it be the fear of not moving ahead and not right. adopting the tech. You know, that's 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 an excellent way to frame it. I like that. So, uh, 
real quick, uh, if our listeners are too familiar with it, but can you explain a little bit what Reveal Brainspace is as yeah, a company? Yeah, so your audience is mostly obviously privacy-centric. Mm-hmm. A lot of what is done on the front end is kind of understanding your data, um, extracting as much value as possible, mitigating risk. Well, trouble comes into paradise when something doesn't go right on the privacy side. That can lead to an internal investigation or litigation. Boom, that is where I operate. So my company is in this space called e-discovery. So once there's litigation, once there's an investigation, once there's a breach, once something went wrong on the privacy side, you kind of go into this whole space of finding the evidence, the who, what, when, where, why. And we're one of those technologies that helps you do that more quickly. And as people have more ways of communicating and there's more data sources and there's this bigger, you know, pool of information, it becomes more and more important to rely on companies like mine that help you visualize the data, organize the data, and basically just get insights more quickly. And so we're in the e-discovery space, AI-powered tech that helps you get evidence faster. I've been in and around the e-discovery space for a while, having you know worked with uh, a lot of you know, just data protection, but also dating back to my pharma days. Um, oh, yeah. So yeah, just a constant state of of something being within that discovery phase, right? Mm-hmm. Perpetually, and not even almost, like literally perpetually, it's just, it's not when, it's just, it's a part oh, of yeah. daily, it's oh, a yeah. part of daily life. Yeah. Um, not having been that close to it, though, uh, I'm not sure how many of, of our listeners are in the same boat as I am. What has eDiscovery brought to the table? Because I promise you, the thing that I have in my mind is what eDiscovery is, is probably a little dated. Yeah, I mean, so discovery in general has been around since litigation has been around. You know, you have to find evidence and give it to the other side. Or if there's an investigation, you have to answer the questions the regulator gives you. And around 2006, when email started to proliferate, there was an amendment to the federal rules that added the, the E into the mix. They basically said, yeah, evidence might be, you know, paper, but it's also that email you sent. It's also that text message and dot, dot, dot. And so what happened is this entire industry developed about, you know, gathering, uh, organizing, reviewing, and applying AI to this new category of evidence. <clears throat> and what's happened in the last probably 10 years is that the data volumes went from, I don't know, a couple hundred gigs to tens of thousands. And they went from email and text message to, I mean, take my morning today. Like I woke up and I went onto social media. I answered a text message. I went onto Slack to see what my team was doing. I had an, oh goodness gracious moment and had to go check something else and email. Then I went on to WhatsApp because I have some people that are international. Then I looked at my TikTok because yes, I have a TikTok. Then I went back and I thought, huh, maybe I can get out of bed, right? So if you wanted to discover what Kat did, you'd have to organize all this data, connect the dots across all these different sources. And let me tell you, the human brain just can't do it. So what's happened in e-discovery in the last 10 years is better tech that can make those connections has been introduced. So you don't have to look at every single piece of hay in the haystack to find the needle, you can find the needle a little more quickly. That's fascinating. That's fabulous too, though. That dot connection was uh, was quite one of the biggest challenges that needed to tackle. And that's the thing about AI is there's so many practical applications. For a long time, everyone was looking for all of the moonshot applications of AI. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, hold on, hold on. Before, before we shoot for the moon, can we can we just get to New Delhi first? Because it's uh-huh. it's, right, it's right over there, just right down down there. If we we build some of those tracks, well, and so, a lot of people are afraid, like, oh, AI will replace me. Oh, this tech is going to make it so I 
my job's not as important. And I, I always tell people. Like, but I want that. To, I want it to replace <laughs> me because I, I want to be off doing something else. I mean, well, that's my point. It doesn't replace you. It frees you up from the boring crap. Yes. But it's like Iron Man. And I always describe it like Iron Man. Like, Jarvis, sometimes you got to run before you can walk. When you're not using it, the suit's in the closet gathering dust. Right. It takes the human. It takes Tony Stark operating it to get the better info, to get the better weapons, to be able to do anything with it. And that's how most of the AI and law in particular is. It's very human-centric, and it's you amplified it. It's augmented oh, yeah. intelligence is kind of the way I describe it. I welcome our augmented overlords. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. I've actually yeah. written that exact article. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Speaking of articles, that's a great, that's a great uh, little transition. You've written a number of articles, but you wrote one recently in particular that we were talking about before we went live. And now uh, what was the title of that, of that article? Um, I think, let me double check because I'm going to get it wrong. Taming the DSAR beast with e-discovery technology. But yes. one of the main themes was actually about, you know, DSAR requests have gone up 66% just in the last year. Average cost to fulfill one's 1400 bucks. People can have as many as 26 people doing it. So these have become weapons of mass disruption that people, activists, and also bad actors are using to um, almost act like a denial of service with certain organizations. Or if it's an organization they think doesn't handle data appropriately, or like in the Blizzard case, did something they don't like, it's weaponizing these GSARs against them. And so I kind of talk about how technology and AI, the tools that I have, can help you, you know, identify the PII more quickly, mitigate uh, leakage of other people's PII, um, and frankly, just get through this without disrupting your business completely. Right, 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 right. The Blizzard case was a fascinating one. Um... The, the, the kind of online activism mm-hmm. continues to adapt as technologies do. And I'm sure 10 years from now, a hundred years from now, they'll, they'll be the exact same story told through a different technology platform oh. lens. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah so, so, so that's fascinating. What were some of the, uh, what was some of the advice that you gave in this article? And I apologize. I will f- wholly oh, admit I hadn't right. had a chance to read it yet. We'll we, share we just, it with your audience after. Yes. Yes, please. Um, you know, the main advice, I mean, I started with, with where your audience sits. You know, you need to have an accurate recent data map. You need to have policies revised to reflect how people are communicating, where PII could be, what, you know, what the course of communication looks like. You need to have that foundation before you can even think about, you know, responding. Then, you know, you want to have an approach where it's not just brute force humans because that's costly. And like, if you're talking about several hundred DSARs a month, do you really want 26 or 30 or however many people disrupted for that period of time? I I don't. So then it becomes, okay, how can I repurpose technology that maybe I didn't think of for a privacy context, think of for a DSAR uh, response context? Is there a way that I can figure out where is the PII? Who's, who do I have to notify without boiling the ocean? And so then I kind of talked about some of the different tools. Um, social network analysis can be helpful. Uh, automated PII um, identification using different models can be super helpful. Um, and kind of automated redaction can be helpful as well, because these are all very manual processes that take humans and time and money that, you know, if you're getting 10 or 100 or 500 of these a month, you just can't do. Right, 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 right. What, in, what industry do you typically think um, you see the, the higher tick in, in DSAR requests? Um, it varies a lot. I mean, obviously anything with like healthcare gets a ton of them because they've got PII and PHI. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the 
more high tech companies that are known for productizing their clients' data with third parties are getting slammed with it. But you also have financial institutions. It, I see a trend of the activists going after companies they think are behaving badly with personal information, but then you also have reactionary stuff. Post-breach, if there's a credit card company, you can imagine all the credit card companies are going to get some volume increase of upticks. If there's an insurance company, same thing. So some of it is kind of reactionary, and then some of it's just based on perception of the market, and some of it's just uh, kind of just based on the flow of humans, kind of where they think their information might be and where they might be uncomfortable with it. I think we're going to see a big spike with um, CCPA and WPA, um, bringing that more into the U.S. Um, space. And I, I would anticipate we're going to see some federal regulation in the next couple of years that's going to bring the ease of filing DSARs nationally in the U.S. much higher or the bar much lower, however you want to describe it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, kind of hitting on when you mentioned CCPA and even GDPR, I mean, the first few years uh, didn't seem like it hit the way they expected it to. And then all of a sudden, 2020 hit, 2021. Now they're starting to see um, some of that come back finally and, and hit some companies pretty hard. The fines are substantial. I mean, yeah. remember 20 million pounds or 4% turnover for GDPR. And even CCPA, the dollar amount looks smaller. But if you look at that, that's per instance. If you're a, a Facebook, that's a very small dollar amount times a very large number of humans. And so the potential financial repercussions, I think, incentivize both activists, regular individuals, and uh, you know, bad actors looking to uh, you know exfiltrate personal information incentivize all of them to start flooding with DSARs, flooding various companies. I mean, since we're on the topic, where do you see? I mean, where do you see this going for privacy and, and regulations in the next couple of years? What, what do you think is going to happen with these uh, these laws that are popping out everywhere in the U.S.? Like I said, I think we're going to end up having a federal regulation that probably is closely aligned with CCPA. Um, California tends to be the canary in the coal mine for a lot of regulation period. Um, yeah. I would imagine, I, I think we're at like a, a dozen or so individual state regulations, give or take. I think once we hit about 50% of the states having it, there'll be a real push for lawmakers to have something. And I know there's some drafts in front of um, House and Senate. I but I think that's when the momentum will really happen because they don't want to have an outlier that's on a one or two standard deviations more strict than CCPA become the norm. Um, so I would say my gut is in the next three years we'll have some sort of federal regulation that's either being voted on or potentially already passed but not yet implemented. What would you like to see happen? Um, you know, I, I think that standardization. That, you know, I you can't unring the bell of where CCPA is. So if I said anything less robust than that, it would be like a wish and a prayer not going to happen. But I would like to see consistency because where it becomes really complicated is even for multinational organizations, balancing GDPR with individual state requirements is complicated. So they just match up to GDPR, right? right. I'd like for it to be companies can plan their privacy posture and their response to these various regulations in a way that they can trust it's not going to fundamentally change because some state out of, you know, 50 that they cover is going to change. Like, I mean, do you want Rhode Island setting the bar for what a multinational company in 50 countries in every state has to do? 
nothing wrong with Rhode Island, but it becomes a lot harder to predict the budget for and to balance the, the risk and benefit of having this sort of data. I'm looking at you, wound socket, Rhode Island. I'm looking at you. <laughs> a little bit. That's, uh, that's a fascinating way to, 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 to look at the, the kind of CCPA scope. Let me see if I ask the question differently, if you might uh, change your mind. Is there anything you think CCPA may have gotten wrong? Um, it's hard to say because I don't think it's being enforced consistently enough to really understand the veracity of every single clause. Like I, I feel like it's still in that trial and error phase and I can't veto anything yet, but I can't also say that thumbs up just because it's sort of like 18 months post GDPR, like people had a lot of thoughts, but I, I want to see how it hashes out in terms of enforcement first to see if it actually has the teeth it needs to, to rein in some of the Palo Alto based big tech that has really productized their, their clients. Um, if the court enforces in an aggregate way and makes big fines, then it could have the appropriate teeth. If it doesn't, and they end up being very small and limited, then I think they probably have to revisit just how robust their penalties are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I might be inclined to agree with you. I, the question was a little loaded. Uh, I think where I, I don't, um, I don't, I think they may have gotten some things wrong was actually on the, on the penalty side of things. In fact, it's, but, I mean, if, if the, if the bench says, okay, it's whatever, I don't remember the exact dollar amount, 1500 bucks, whatever it is, right. Per instance. And they say, all right, you've got 1.5 billion users. That is a hefty fee, right? But if they limit it and they say, okay, the class is really 50 people, then that's like, they, they make that in 30 seconds of Google ads, you know, it right. doesn't make any impact. Right. So it depends on the interpretation of, um, of the enforcing bodies. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I don't know, I don't know how much faith I have in that, oddly enough, but you know, they, they could prove me wrong. I'll tell you the thing that kind of gets me the most is what you've already touched on there it's this patchwork of uh regulation i it i just really struggle to to see how as uh oh, certainly as a country um much less as a whole digital society we're going to ever digitally respect the privacy of individuals and the security of that information um with 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 an entire patchwork uh, not being uh steeped in, in in the law side of things though if you were if you weren't in one of these think tanks, what, what, what's the kind of advice you would float uh, to someone who'd said, you know, we're going to get a bunch of really smart people together in the room. We're going to try and we're going to try and quilt together one big blanket from this patchwork. Where, where do you start? Where do you lay the first stitch? I think I would start with CCPA. Honestly, I would say, don't try to reinvent the wheel, find a baseline, you know, and build the patchwork in a more kind of, cohesive way. Like, don't try to say, okay, there's 15 laws. Let's get 12%, 12%, 12%, 12%. Like I would start with a foundational piece that you like 80% of, right? Make pivots to the area's penalties or, you know, what is considered PII. Make, make those pivots. And then if there are laws that kind of go above and beyond, evaluate that on like a point by point basis, but don't try to synthesize the language of all of it, because then you're going to get lost in, uh, the linguistics of it, not mm-hmm. in the intent of protecting privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I, what I tell clients, honestly, and because I did a lot of consulting on the privacy side when I was still in the big four is if you're multinational 
or you think you'll ever be in more than one country, just aim for GDPR, you know, aim for compliance there. And the benefit is, you know, as regulations evolve in the U.S., they're not likely to be more robust than GDPR. So if you aim for that level of uh, respect for the right of privacy and uh, appropriate handling of personal information, it's hard to go wrong. And then you're not reinventing the wheel and pivoting and pivoting and pivoting. All right. That's a good point. Um, <clears throat> security and privacy. What do they mean to you personally? Um, it's all a balancing act. Like we're on this seesaw of wanting to extract value and mitigate risk of data. And so privacy to me is, you know, how do I plan for the unknown? Uh, security is how do I have a shield for the known, which is there are bad guys that are trying to get this information. Um, in terms of how you enforce it, and what level you do, it varies by industry, by organization, but it's all about mitigating the risk of coming to me, basically. You know, both sides of those are about limiting the amount you've got to do discovery on, limiting the amount you've got to go to court about, limiting the amount you've got to disclose because there's been a breach. So everything you do on the front end, it's like uh, taking your medicine, apple a day, keep the doctor away, kind of it's that foundational thing that hopefully, I mean, not hopefully. I hope people always keep suing each other because I have a job, but hopefully it limits how much people have to go through the very costly. I mean, each litigation has about $2 million of e-discovery cost as a kind of average benchmark. So this is costly, high risk, high visibility, high reputational damage. It's all stuff you don't want to have to be doing if you do use my tech because it's the best. But I look at security and I look at privacy as the mitigating factors, the gates, the walls that kind of hold back that invading army that's going to push you into having to spend and go into the discovery process. I like it. <clears throat> have you ever dealt with anything in your past? I mean, you don't have to get, you know, too descriptive, but have you ever dealt with any kind of um, privacy threat or? I mean, I've had my accounts hacked for sure. There was yeah. a... Um, I believe a Russian OnlyFans lady that took over my dog's Instagram account um, and was sending out Venmo requests. Um, but no, I mean, I've definitely had, um, I've had people use my, um, me basically as part of a spear phishing exercise, trying to get, um, do like that whole CEO requires a new password calling up my help desk. That happened at my last company. And we caught it because the person was being rude and I'm not usually rude to that person who was my friend. Um, I've also had people doing like kind of password requests, like, Anything that you've seen in like one of those security pen tests for like a, you know, example spear phishing, it's been done using my name through one of the companies I'm at. Um, people are crafty. It's, it's impressive. Some are crafty and some are, some are overly not creative. Um, That's true. Example. That's true. Prime, prime example. And you know what? People still fall for it. I don't know if you've seen this floating around the internet, but um, I, I saw a... Uh, a message. Uh, it was from Michael Jackson, and it. Uh, I can't remember the the username, but obviously it had Michael Jackson in it, and it was like, like one, it. one one one. And the message said, "Hi, this is Michael Jackson. I'm I'm messaging from a secret account. Um, I'm still alive, and I need you to send me six hundred dollars, so so I can so I can come back to the United States." <laughs> and then the second message says, "He he." And I, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't. Oh, the he, he, that's what, that's what does it for me. You know? Yes. And I, I, I was like, okay, this is stupid, but 
but the last part of it just cracked me up. I couldn't, I couldn't help it. And it's not too soon. So um, I thought that was a squirrel moment for me. And you know, what's funny though, they would stop doing those terrible, basic, very transparent uh, fishing attempts if they stopped working. So as that's, much as it makes us laugh, yeah. someone, someone has, has wired money to Michael Jackson. You know? Well, think about the following also. The bar is so low for that one. And you can automate setting the message out. If you get 100 <laughs> people to fall for it after sending out 10 million messages, oh, yeah. they're likely to not even, like, they'll go through the hoops to just hit send. You, you're, you're now six grand richer for doing nothing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah See, I my, had a, a friend that uh, I believe wired money for a purebred dog to South Africa and was shocked when they showed up at the airport and the purebred dog did not show up. Ah. And they got a second email saying, oh, I need you to wire me more money. There right. was a, I need a $500 dog case. And I was just like. Reminds me of the friend that uh, just keeps asking for money, but has a, a gambling problem. A little bit, a little bit. Um, but I mean, I think that brings up an interesting point though. Like we're, we're in the bubble. The three of us were kind of in the know. The average person, um, has a lot less sophistication when it comes to what the risks are. Um, and may not even think that, Hey, there's someone who's entire, you know, 12 hours a day, they're just trying to scam people, or there's state actors that are involved in trying to exfiltrate data from high-end organizations. It's, um, you know, they might think, oh, I'm who, me? Just little old me not realizing that, hey, as a, a secretary at Apple, you've got access to 50 passwords that could be very impactful for an organization. So it's, um, you know, I laugh and shake my head, but it's also, I think it's on us to kind of educate people just what the risks are because, you know, I there were massive consulting companies that found out they had state actors in their system for four, five, six months just watching. And that led to them being able to, as a nation state bid against other organizations to the tune of billions of dollars. So like these little incremental uh, human errors can lead to very, very big financial and also safety uh, impact. So preaching to the choir, no doubt with you guys, but no, well, you, you might think you are, but I'll be honest with you. Our audience is uh, it's fairly mixed between uh, the privacy and the security crowd. And, and I do genuinely find that uh, some of our security compadres are not as well-versed on the privacy side of the coin and, and vice versa for that matter. So I think those things are a good reminders. Um, the shoemakers kids, in fact, really have shoes. They're, mm-hmm. they're usually mm-hmm. the ones running around town, uh, but nothing on their feet. So it, it is a good reminder for, for all of us to be that vigilant. Um, yeah. I, I, I only had the unpleasant uh, event of someone opened up a lonely fans account in my name and people <laughs> were paying money to, to see me get off the internet. It was quite sad. In fact, yeah, no, it's um, you know, rule 34, right? That's, <laughs> stop, stop, but yes, stop. It is a fascinating world we live in, that's for Indeed. sure. And I love, I love the tech and yeah. privacy realm. It's, um, it's only going to get more interesting from this point. Um, and this, this brings up an interesting question, and we would love, and our listeners would love to, to hear your take on it. So if, uh, Kat, if you had, uh, let's, let's say, let's, in general, you 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 take a new role in a company, or you're starting up your own company. You only have a hundred dollar budget to spend on data privacy. Um, where, like, on a program or anything, where where would you start with that hundred dollars? I'm torn between the training, kind of doing some 
baselining because you're probably super vulnerable and actually just doing an outright assessment to just understand where the gaps are. Um, those would actually probably be my two priorities. Um, and then kind of moving more towards data mapping and really understanding the ecosystem. But my biggest fear is, is the human component. There's a lot you can do on the tech side, but if the humans aren't, if they're, if they're using password as their password, if they're writing down their logins, if they're clicking on every link, if they're, you know, sending an email because someone who had CEO at xyz.com told them to, that is a massive vulnerability. So I almost think I would lean into the, the education and assessment side to just understand how big of a pile of um, trouble I was in um, and then kind of go into more formalized doing some pen testing sort of stuff and some spear phishing testing. That's good because you know what? It might be 2021, but people still write their passwords on a sticky note and stick it on their computer screen. It's still a thing. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's probably become more of a thing because the password rotation every 90 days and having to have different alphanumeric structures based on what application it is, combining that with single sign-on, which is going to be its own password, makes it so that the human brain can only remembers so much. And so you're mm -hmm. more likely to have to have it somewhere else. And maybe it's not a sticky note. Maybe it's in notepad on your iPhone, which you're going to take to Apple repair, or maybe to the cheaper guy that happens to be a repair shop that maybe likes to pull information off your phone. I don't know. Um, so it, it, it's a risk, you know, and it, the, the yeah. human side is, is what you always have to account for, especially as technologists who probably tend to think of the technical solution and mitigating the risk from a system standpoint. Um, you can have the best infrastructure and the, the company I was talking about that was breached is literally the number one cyber response consulting company out there and they were breached through humans. So that's true. Um, <clears throat> if uh, I don't know if you have any advice out there for any of the listeners, but uh, for fix your privacy, whether it be for organizations or for personal privacy, it's up to you. Um, do you have any kind of advice or tips for anyone out there? Um, you know, it's probably a different one than you usually hear, but um, I would get a, your arms around from an organization just how much issues around privacy or over collection of data or security have cost you. Because the biggest struggle for most organizations, and especially I work a lot with law firms, is getting the budget to have an appropriate privacy and security program in place. Like, so start with what goes wrong. And if you don't have anything that's gone wrong internally, go with benchmarks, but have a really robust business case to get the dollars that you need to understand your infrastructure, understand your risk, mitigate the human side, mitigate the system side of issues. I, I, I've come across enough instances where certainly law firms are like, oh, if I spend a million dollars with Mandiant, I'm not going to have that million dollars go to profit sharing for the partners. I can't do that then they're breached and it costs them $100 million. So if you can kind of start with some of that, what could go wrong, it kind of is back in that storytelling. You tell the story of, if you don't make this investment, here's where, where things can go wrong. I think that makes your business case and development of a privacy program a lot easier to do. And then from a, a personal standpoint, use sentences for passwords. They're memorable. They're probably going to have enough <laughs> variability of capital, lowercase, numeric, and you're not going to have to write it on a sticky note because it's a lot easier than writing in leap speak. I like it. 
Um, now I know we were talking offline. We had another topic uh, that you wanted to bring up, and um, it's it's gone away from me, and I'm I apologize, but wow. you know, we went over uh, weaponized DSARS. Oh yeah, I was talking about kind of the volume, variety, velocity of data. So COVID did a lot of things, but the biggest thing it did for organizations was dramatically accelerate. I call it the app apocalypse, right? But the use of applications. Um, and the use of, um, you know, what used to be called shadow IT, but really has become triage IT, the IT that you needed from whether it's Zoom, whether it's collaboration tools like Slack and Teams, whether it's, hey, I have colleagues in Brazil, I can't get a hold of them, I'm going to have to start using WhatsApp. All of these, you, you may not have policy for currently, you may not have it as part of your data map, but there's absolutely client data in there, there's most likely some level of a counter PII in there. So my advice is, you know, for a lot of people, do a reassessment because COVID has dramatically amplified your your ecosystem of where data, both for extracting value, but also mitigating risk lives. Um, We're already starting to see cases where entire litigation is uh, turning on an emoji, or I've got had murder cases that we solved using a smart water pump because someone killed someone at 3am, they emptied and refilled a hot tub, or people that are identifying people in their C-suite that are using illicit drugs because of their Fitbit. There's this wealth of information out there. And so as a privacy professional or a security professional, what you don't know is just a massive, massive risk. Say there's litigation and you don't know people are using um, ephemeral messaging. Uh, Uber got an adverse uh, you know, finding from the court because all of their engineers on a trade secret case were using self-destructing messaging. If you don't know that an entire organization has made that shift, then you have potentially sanctions or, or worse, you could lose an entire case. So um, I think for privacy professionals, like the time is of the essence to reassess policy. Uh, reassess um, what you have in terms of contingency plan for breach, reassess what applications might be in scope, because I guarantee what you had in 2019 is not what your ecosystem is in 2021. Yeah, that's such a good point. And it makes me think, um, to bring up this question, what do you think the most common um, thing is missed by most organizations when it comes to a privacy program that they overlook that is usually looked at the most when a breach happens for a penalty? Um, you know, it's hard to say like application to application, but yeah. they're getting spanked when it comes to regulators just in general or litigation in general is, um, the stuff they should have been looking at, text message, right? Mobile phone data, whether it's BYOD or company issued, there's just a ton of information there. Basic social media, you know, Facebook, Netflix, Twitter, um, depending on the case. Um, and it, it's not so much if they miss it, but it's if they should have known to look there, like it was pretty basic stuff, or if they intentionally did not look somewhere or intentionally destroyed evidence. Um, that's how do, where they, how do they prove that kind of thing? I'm just curious. Um, well, how do they prove if they haven't uh, looked or? Sometimes it's adverse inference. Sometimes it's they should have, and I'm going to assume they didn't, me being the judge, because they should have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 
there isn't as much grace given to people as there was 10 years ago when it comes to the judges, because there's enough case law out there. There's enough articles out there. Um, even if you're there, there's actually new, uh, model rules coming out with all of the bars saying you have to have a basic level of technical competence as a legal professional. Same thing as if you're practicing antitrust or practicing litigation, you have to have a basic level of skill. It's like an ethical obligation. Right. So now there's actually penalties that lawyers can face for not knowing basic stuff about text, basic ideas about you know where data might reside. So it's um I have a it's not hard and fast, but it's interesting. Who wrote that law given uh <clears throat> Given how confusing some of tech law is written, even even versus like, you know, non-tech law, and I'm not even being facetious here, like I, I find that a really, really, really high bar to hold that you can completely understand it. Well, oh, no, 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 it's not complete understanding. So it was written by the first model rules by the ABA, one right. one, and then there were state levels. And what it is, it's not so much you have to know everything, it's that you need to know enough to issue spot if it's a technology question know enough to know if you have to ask for someone that's an expert to help you um, or know enough to know like that you should be asking questions about this. So it's more about not just kind of going in and pretending the tech side doesn't exist and you don't have to do it alone. Like the way it's uh, architected is, you know, this technical competence can be achieved individually through you as the attorney or through you in concert with technical experts you work with. Very good. Put away the pitchfork, boys. We're okay. <laughs> Speaking of, I watched uh, Shrek uh, Marathon was on. <laughs> I love Shrek. It's such a good movie. It's so good. <laughs> they are. They're really good. I don't know if it's a little too advanced for my, my two-year-old, but... Uh, Whatever. You'll just keep watching it from now until he gets it, and then a few years after that. It's okay. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> for two, it's just bright colors. So he'll be fine. That's right. There's right. nothing wrong with this plan. He loves, he loves The Incredibles, number two. Oh, there you go. I started to really like, I didn't know, I didn't know they were so funny. They are funny. Most of the Disney movies are pretty good. They, they figured mean, out the people buying the ticket are not the two-year-olds, you know? They figured yeah. out you need to be able to sit through it for two hours also. And <laughs> yeah, but not only one hours, time. At least, least 2,000 hours, right? Yes, right. Exactly. exactly. They Because yeah. when they when they like something once, they want to watch it every single day, uh, almost back to back to back. My sister was obsessed with the brave little toaster growing up. So I probably could recite it word for word because when she was five, I was like, you know, 10. It's burned into my brain. I bet. I, I watched that. I tried to rewatch it with him recently and it doesn't play out well. It's not a, doesn't, uh, <laughs> it's better it to remember it well. as it was in your brain. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. So many very things. Yeah. It's better. It's better in the, it's better in the long term cold storage, not in the short term storage. That's yeah. right. Cute concept though, but um, Kat, any, any, uh, anything that we didn't touch on that you still want to bring up um, before we move on to the last section? No, I mean, I think the, the main cautionary tale I, I give to, to your audience in particular is, you know, uh, my area of expertise is what happens if the right precautions aren't taken. And not just that, you can't always avoid litigation, you can't always avoid investigations, but they become infinitely more complicated and more expensive and more painful to deal with if you don't have the right security and privacy protocols in place. If you don't have all of that basic foundational stuff that we talked about. And so, you know, unless you want to spend a lot of money in, in my space, you know, better to invest in some prevention. That's good advice. 
Well, uh, well, we'll move on to our last round here, which is our deep, dark secrets. We get to know you a little bit more. I feel nervous. I like it. <laughs> you should like some of these since I got to learn a little bit more about you during the podcast. I know what I want to ask, at least a couple. Let's start with the first one here. <clears throat> if you could be any superhero or have any superpower. He man. What would you? Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. I love He-Man. I don't know why. Not, not what I expected, but no, all right. When I was a kid, like there was He-Man and She-Ra and She-Ra just was lame. I wanted to be He-Man, <laughs> like master of the universe, going against Skeletor. Power I, of Grayskull. I know. No one, no one has chosen the power of Grayskull before. Mm-hmm. Bold move. The judges And I, I don't think I look like I would have chosen the power of Grayskull. I bet you were thinking Wonder Woman. And, uh, no, well, no. You know, we're not that kind of show, but I damn sure <laughs> I damn sure didn't see power of Grayskull. No, I, I thought Iron Man or something Marvel. I didn't really necessarily think. I, you know, mean, most... I think I probably am closer to Iron Man, but, you know, He-Man, big old sword. And just That's why I wanted to ask. You threw me off and I think they still sell those. Oh, they most certainly like do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I think like yeah. today or tomorrow, there's a new movie coming out. I saw the CTO of uh, Mattel was posting something about it. And I told him the same thing. I'm like, I wanted to be He-Man growing up, not She-Ra. So. That's funny. Which reminds I don't know why I just thought of this, but I remember a show called Xenon, the Princess Warrior or whatever. Xena. Oh, yeah. Xena, Xena, I didn't like Xena. her as much either. It's yeah. all He-Man. Just, just, yeah. all right. I wasn't pop, a big fan of it. Pop quiz. What was the name of the little floaty guy in He-Man? Oh, I don't remember. Like, I just remember that I liked him a lot. I know. I loved him too. And I could never find his little action figure in the store. And I wanted to buy it in the worst way. His name was Orko. Orko the Oracle. Orko. Yeah. My my second favorite, which probably would have been more logical, would have been uh, the Thundercats. And Tara was awesome. Thundercats, yes. Um, Uh, But I was confused. How do cat creatures have a cat as a pet that's also a cat? Well, they had a little cat creature. I was very, very we could surprised. we could ask humans that question, and yet it still seems so very obvious what the answer should be. Just saying, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the topic, do you have any cats? I'm allergic to cats. There <laughs> you are. <laughs> I have two dogs, and that that when I saw there was a question about deep dark secrets, I'm like, I'm definitely going to say I'm allergic to cats because it's you know. But yeah, I'm allergic, so I've got a um, geriatric pug and a little six month old Frenchie. Because they, I don't sneeze with them. Suggestion oh, for Halloween: You should get some of that, like you know, washable animal paint, and paint like bangle stripes onto them, so that you can have cats for one day of the. <laughs> I year. like it. There I you like go. It. It'll be the cat lady with actual cats. Mm-hmm. So, if you could have a machine that produces a hundred dollars for life, how much would you be willing to pay for it? With what frequency does it produce a hundred dollars? <laughs> Like every second, every minute. That's a great question. And I don't know. Because dollars for life could also mean like it's just $100 once, in which case I'd pay 50. I like it. Because it could just mean $100 and that's it. (laughs) Uh Well, and if it requires me to press a button, then I would have to like do some calculus on like how many times could I press the button in a day before I'm like really annoyed? Can I automate it? Um, but I'd say probably 50% of the yield of revenue I could get from it in a year. That's where you got to pay George Jetson and his uh, button finger to just go to uh-huh. town for it. Just... Or I could go like the way Homer Simpson did with like the bird. That yes, the little, yes, yes, the ostrich. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and again, the Simpsons did it first. That's right. They always do. They always yep. do. It's so funny. <laughs> do you guys That's see how those you know movies? time travel works. 
Did you see Clearly. the Trump Trump mean memes and stuff? Oh yeah, escalator. So funny. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so time capsule. If you could put anything in there today, one thing, what would you do that you can open up in ten years? What would you put in there today? I don't know, because like my instinct would be a mobile phone, but who knows if it's going to be the same type of network. Um, I could do some form of music, but who knows whether there'll be an ability to play it. Um, I don't know, maybe a He-Man figurine like that. that you don't have to play it. You don't have to rely on a, anything digital. Um, but my, my gut would be like a mobile device, something that would be accessible. I don't know. Not the most exciting. Sorry. No, it's okay. Throw my Metallica CDs um, in there, maybe. So, this is an interesting question. Where um, I don't, I don't believe you're in Florida, but how would you sell hot cocoa to me in Florida? Oh, it's a the latest, greatest weight loss and um, health, life everlasting thing, and the temperature increase and in sugar is good for elevating your metabolism. People lose on average five pounds a month drinking it and it tastes much better than coffee. It's the Miami beach diet 2.0. That's what it is. <laughs> and what I would it be it. called? What would you call it? Um, it's gotta be something slim fit. Something uh, so you would call skinny, it skinny cocoa. Beach. It'd be like keto cocoa or something, right? It would keto have keto cocoa. <laughs> yes, keto cocoa. I mean, keto coffee is literally butter and coffee, and people buy it. So you it's know, true. That is absolutely keto true. Keto cocoa, and I, I would say that it's, um, you know, massive weight loss. I'd lie through my teeth, right? Well, that, that also. I mean, that's sales. That also. <laughs> I mean, if all that, you can just drink <laughs> one of those a day and replace a meal, it's like a slim. You'd lose weight, maybe. That's a, that's a true diabetes, statement. but you know, get. You know, Look, once you have to saw that leg off, the weight loss will come. <laughs> yeah. It's, hey, uh, if you replace a meal with 150 calories of cocoa, you will lose weight. Something will something will happen. You you might. Yeah. <laughs> so that is the truest of truth. Truths. Um, the two is, truths. <laughs> the two truths. <laughs> Kat, uh, this is a fun question for me. I love it. And I'm curious. So if you would star in a movie who, what famous actor would play you and what genre movie would it be? Just because I watched it recently, I'd have to be like Scar Joe Black Widow, just a little bit like that night I am on my third husband. So it does, it suits me, you know? <laughs> well, hey, third time's a charm. Uh, you know. And I mean, who doesn't, I mean, she's, she's gorgeous. So why not? I can pick anyone. She's fabulous. See, I thought you were going to go Gal Gadot given the He-Man thing, but that works too. That works too. Scarlett Joe does. Yeah. Gal. She's so serious. I feel like I need a little humor in there. Yeah. Yeah, I heard things that she didn't even, she felt like uh, it was a, uh, when someone offered her the position for that role in Marvel that beneath her. Yeah. Yeah. It was beneath her or something. All right. Well, I always thought she was laughing. That's just, I mean, that's how, all, <laughs> that's how all my Israeli friends look when they laugh. It's just, that's there. That's, that's there. You have a lot face. of Botox or. <laughs> Don't knock it. I'm, I'm, uh, okay. I'm about ready. Whatever keeps you looking a yeah, home ready. Right. No judgment. Right. Yeah, that's right. I just have to be careful. Like I can't have the eyebrow not moving because that's my tell that I'm like judging, you know, so. judging or 
Mm. I'm just gonna like curious behind my neck so the eye still moves. I might go get a shot this week. Well, it got so bad that like my uh, my team knows it's my tell. So anytime I'm making a face on a uh, a Zoom call, I'll start getting the um, one eyebrow up emojis, and they're they're like fixing. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's good. Very absurd um, team. All right. Last question. All right, lightning round. Let's go. Is there one app? smartphone app, any app, doesn't matter, that you use that you absolutely dislike? Um, I have a love-hate affair with TikTok, I will say. Um, I love it for making short format content that I can use. I've got a big LinkedIn network. I hate it because when I'm actually on it, it's just noise and flashing lights. And I feel like I am turning myself into a member of the film Idiocracy. So it's a love-hate affair. Like it's the easiest app to edit short format video on. I love it. I use it daily. And I feel a little dumber every time I do. Plus China now has my facial voice and digital footprint. So it's over with. We're being honest. They had that anyway. At least now you've given the world content on top of it. I have, I have. And a surprising number of people have seen the TikToks. So I... I can't stop doing it now. I've like released the genie. I can't get it back in the bottle. I appreciate that TikTok exists for other people because once in a while, something will trickle down through the interwebs, right, right, to, right, all the way down to my rock, and I'll get some good, some good TikTok moments. And I'm like, I like this. I don't like this enough to to sign up for the platform, <laughs> but I like this. Yeah, no, it I, definitely I, I, it lets you become your creative self. That's for sure. And uh, like I said, love, hate, I, I hate being on it. I love the result, which is I can, I, I make TikToks about AI and people are a little less afraid of it. So like I'm achieving the objective, even if AI. I do have to hang out with the 14 year olds and, and Chinese state actors. <laughs> so awesome. like any other border. The trade-offs. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kat, um, thank you so much for taking the time to to come on the show and, um, we really appreciate what you do. And um, obviously people can go see your TikTok. Uh, yeah. what, what's your, what's your username How do we there? Find you? Um, the Technocat. Um, Techno or Cat. you can go to uh, the technocat.com. It's my website. I, I tend to host um, all the articles and blogs and stuff that I write all across the legal tech space on there. Plus awesome. it, it features laser cats. So what's not to like. Yeah, exactly. Done and done. And then um, I think I think you're speaking um, at an event in, at the end of the month. Yep, I'll be speaking at ILTA, International Legal Technology Association, in Vegas on the 23rd about bringing AI into your in-house legal department. So how do you get people along for the ride? How do you get the budget? How do you measure if it's working? All that jazz. Will there be uh, laser cats there? Or? I mean, I think I'm the main laser cat uh aficionado that secretly loves he-man but um there might be others you never it is vegas there, there might vegas. be natural laser cats. It's like, there's like five of them not less than <laughs> yeah. that. it's vegas yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah you guys will find each other for us i know it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. true yeah we'll have a herd of us right exactly we'll meet up at the bar later I, uh-huh. i've seen this movie and i like the way it ends um well look thank you so much for coming on the show pleasure, pleasure. Um, the techno cat it is you have risen to to the level of aristocat in my book oh i like it yeah yeah so i'll uh, i'll be on the lookout for more of your content really appreciate um all of the the sage advice you had to give and we'll have to have you back on the show if you don't mind we'll, we'd like to issue an open invite and get you back sometime i am Maybe we'll have, 
We'll May have I you and Debbie on there. I was going to say, why don't we do a double whammy with the techno cat and the data diva? Because she's one of my favorite humans and uh, we love to banter. There we go. There That'll we go. be, we're going to, we're going to make that happen. Security round table with data, data, data diva and techno cat. I think the more superhero names, the better, right? You've got to go for as much alliteration as possible. It's Cat the Technocat Casey and Deborah the Data Diva Reynolds. It is. Say that five times fast. (laughs) I don't think I could say it one time fast. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take that clip. We're going to speed it up. (laughs) And that'll be it. I love it. it. Put it on loop. That's it. Put it on loop. That's it. Awesome. Well, Well, thanks, Cat. pleasure, gents. Yeah, this is fun. Thank you. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week and to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I I know that there are millions of other shows and it means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend, have them tell their friends and then make maybe make some new friends along the way uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together. Let's protect what matters most. And by the way, DJ Can you go ahead and drop that outro beat and keep it classy? We'll see y'all next week.